We're picking it up at 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, 18, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. If you join me in prayer, Father, thank you so much for this great day, this Lord's Day that you have given us. It is a blessing to be with your family. It is a blessing to be in Christ. For those who may not know you today, those may, who have, may have wandered from the faith or may have wandered as a prodigal, I pray that you would bring them home. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at a text where the Corinthians were sadly abusing and misrepresenting the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would show us what you want us to hear and see in our day. Because there is a possibility that in our day we could do the same, that we could be irreverent or unfeeling towards those around us, Lord. We are all different, and the common thing we have is that we're all one in Christ and Jesus, you prayed that we would be one at the, the end of the, the Lord's Supper when you initiated communion. Your, your words there in the upper room were, Father, I pray that they would be one. And we know at some point even the disciples were arguing at that meal and they were divided and, and you prayed for their unity because their unity would be a witness to a broken and fractured world, a world often without love or with a pseudo-love. And Father, forgive us for the times that we have ignored 
those right around us or maybe treated them with contempt if not spoken in the way that we thought about them. Forgive us, Lord, because it's got to start here. If this country is going to heal, it's got to start with your people. And we know even Peter says judgment begins in the house of God. And so, Lord, even though this, is a, this text is about the Lord's Supper and it should be celebratory, there is an aspect of solemnity or it's a holy moment as well. And I pray that that tension will be okay for us as we look at this text and try to understand what you have to say to your church. So may you be glorified as we study your word. May our hearts be pliable to your spirit. And may we be a little closer to you, a little bit more like you because we've been here. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Some of you have uh, given up television and I completely understand that. Others of you still watch some TV and it's a little bit more convenient these days to watch TV shows because you can record your favorite show. And one of my favorite shows over the years has been a show called Blue Bloods. Anybody seen the show Blue Bloods with Tom Selleck? All right. There you go. Anyway. And, and the show is about a family involved in law enforcement. And the daughter is the, uh, she's involved in the law. And what they have in the show Blue Bloods that's pretty unique is they have something called the Sunday night dinner. Sunday night dinners at the Reagan house. And the family... It's, it really looks like it's a non-negotiable thing. The family gathers on Sunday evening, and they're a Roman Catholic family, and they pray. And then, if you've ever watched the show, they debate stuff at the table. Man, it seems like they talk about everything, cases that are going on, all of that. And they'll talk and they'll disagree, but that family stays united, and they reinforce their values around the supper table. And in our culture that's so fast-moving, and we have so many things going on, just that idea of supper, the supper table, has really been lost for a lot of that, a lot of us. And I would encourage you that if that's the case, that maybe you try to get that back. And some of you may be thinking, but that means I have to cook. Yes, it does. But you can delegate cooking. People can all contribute. In fact, those of you with young kids, I would encourage you to think about letting your young kids participate in preparing meals. If you're not doing that right now, let them wash the vegetables. Give them the sharpest knife in the house. Let them, no, you want them to be careful. But, but here's the point. That participation, that, that unity around the table speaks volumes, and it reinforces values, and it helps you to connect with your family. In the ancient world, connecting at a table was a very intimate exchange. In fact, it was something that they, they saw as either building a relationship or keeping a relationship close was around the table. Now, the Lord instituted something that we know as the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Meal. And that meal was a meal that was really centered around Passover, which he then transformed into what we know as the Lord's Supper or communion. And when you think about the word communion, you have to widen it. It's not just your communion with God, as beautiful as that is, but it's your communion with one another. It's that the body of Christ is this beautiful entity, this organism bought with the blood of Jesus. And though we may be divided in the world in terms of where we come from, our socioeconomic background, you, you fill in the blanks. We can have all these things that may separate us in the world, As we come to Christ, all of those things are supposed to fall by the wayside. 
because we are one in Christ. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your family history is. Your bank account says we are one in Jesus Christ. And that is what we need to practice to a world that's very fractured. But unfortunately, here's the reality. Oftentimes, those worldly mindsets get carried into this place as well. And racism and division and class, you know, uh, looking down on the poor or etc., etc. You fill in the blank can be brought into a place like this. And that's sad when that happens. Because that doesn't speak of who we are in Jesus. We are supposed to be a gospel-oriented community centered on the fact that we've been saved by the grace of God. And there's no longer male or female, slave or free. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, we know that those distinctions continue. We're still male and female, etc. But the point that Paul is making in Galatians is that those things should not matter anymore because what should trump all of that is our oneness in Jesus. And one day we are going to be at a big long table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and there's a place for each and every one of us at that table. That's the beauty of it. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be represented there. Wouldn't it be good if we practice what's going to happen in the future? Wouldn't it be good if we actually were the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17 following that Passover meal that we would actually be one in a world that is so broken, in a world where so many people are just longing for love. Well, the big issue in the text is simply this, that the Corinthian believers are abusing the Lord's Supper. It's about their behavior around the Lord's Supper. You study the text, uh, scholars would say that Paul is not really trying to correct their theology about the Lord's table in the sense of his death and resurrection. They get that. What he's trying to uh, deal with in terms of correction is their attitude around the Lord's table. They're bringing their worldly attitude into it. Now, in Corinth, there were classes of people, and there was really, in the ancient world, there was very little to no middle class. So if you, were, if you became a Christian in first century Corinth, you were either rich or poor. There was very little in between. Remember, church buildings came later, a couple centuries later, so homes in these, uh, in these contexts were the places where churches met. There weren't church buildings. People, and this would have to be typically a wealthy individual, would open up their home to the church. Could be a Saturday night, could be a Sunday, and the church would gather. And what the church would do is something called a love feast. And it's similar, but not exactly the same as our potlucks, as we all have enjoyed over the years. And people would show up, and in the Roman world, if you were a servant or a slave, half of the Roman world was in some form of servitude. Or if you were a freedman or something like that, you had little to no control over your schedule. So if the church set a time to have, let's say, a love feast that would culminate in the uh, uh, Lord's Supper, you got there whenever you could. Whenever your master said you could go, that's when you went. You might be late. And if you were poor, you would have very little to bring to that occasion. You might not have much food at all. Let's just imagine you had a family of five and you were a poor person. Remember, uh, day laborers relied heavily just on getting a paycheck at the end of the day so they could buy enough for their family to survive. 
So think about these class distinctions. Think about a wealthy homeowner who's a Christian who's opened up their home, used to having extravagance, used to having plenty, bread and wine, and maybe they would supply some of that. But people would arrive and they were all at these different places. Now, as you do a little research on this time, what they say is that the potluck of modern uh, churches in America and other places is not exactly right. It's not the exact parallel because what people did is they prepared what's called box meals. They would, they would put it in like a basket meal and they would show up to uh, a gathering. But when they showed up, it was not about sharing. It was just about eating whatever you brought. So whatever you could afford to bring, that's what you shared with your family. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you show up at a potluck, you're a poor family, you just got off work, you were able to grab your family and show up, maybe you had a, a little bit of bread, and you show up to this rich uh, household where there are also Christians there, but maybe they got there earlier and they're eating already and enjoying what they've prepared while you have very little. Let's just say that you're dividing a little loaf of bread among your family. Well, in this time, it wasn't like everybody put a pot on the counter to share. You just ate what you brought. And those who were wealthy were used to eating while servants stood around and watched them and served them. And that seems to be the backdrop. That those attitudes of class distinctions, etc., were coming into the church love feast. And people were not really sharing with one another. They weren't really reflecting what the Lord's Supper is supposed to reflect. The meal has a message. And the message is that the God of heaven so loved you and me that he came down and sacrificed his life and gave everything for us. And imagine here we are at an ancient love feast that culminates in the Lord's Supper and we can't even share with other people. And maybe even in our excess we start to mock other people who have very little and don't dress as well as we do, etc., etc. Paul had heard about this. And for Paul, it was a travesty. Stephen Ohm, who has written a commentary on 1 Corinthians, says, Whereas most groups divide up along the lines of rich, poor, and free slave, the church is to be the one institution where things get flipped upside down. When Christians eat common bread and drink from a common cup, it is a symbol a visual representation of the common divisions and disunities of our world being conquered in Christ. We tend to marginalize others who are different than we are. We tend to alienate people as the other because they are not like us. Therefore, rather than being concerned about their interests, we place ourselves at the center and ask everyone else around us to revolve around us. But the beauty, says Um, of the Lord's Supper is that there is a common bread and a common cup, close quote. It makes us one in Christ. Those divisions should die in the church. But like a lot of things that we all wrestle with, we can carry stuff into our Christianity. And we're all works in progress. And we all need to admit right now, me included, that, Lord, you need to change my heart in some areas. There may be things that I don't see that are in my heart that can come out in the way I think or the attitudes I project to others, and that's just frankly wrong. I want to be like you. I want to see those barriers broken down. I saw how you went to the Samaritan woman. I saw how you went to those who were outcasts of society. And if I'm going to eat your supper, I want to do it to your honor. 
and I want to do it to your glory. The Lord's Supper is just that. It belongs to him and he calls us to it. And when it's done right, it's beautiful, isn't it? We often you know, get a chance in this particular congregation to come to the front uh, when the services are a little bit smaller and we come down together and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup. And it becomes a testimony of our unity and our oneness in Christ. You see, we are supposed to be an alternate community, an upside-down social order. We are to be a gospel community. The meal can get muddied if our conduct is wrong when we come into a place like this. Christ's loving sacrifice should be at the heart of what we do. Instead of this meal, though, in Corinth being a theater of grace, it became a theater for class division. It became a theater for others looking down on other people. And whenever that happens in the church, it is a sad commentary. Because it means that we really haven't gotten in touch with God's grace. Because if you understand the depths of God's grace, that stuff will go away. Because all ground is level at the foot of the cross, brothers and sisters. And we need to see that the change has got to start in the church. The Lord's Supper provides a special opportunity for God's people to come to the table. The head seat is taken. It's by the head of the church, Jesus. He is the head, we're the body. And so we want to reflect and honor the head of the table when we come to his table. There should be none of this. And this is what Paul says in 17. He says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together, the verb is used five times in the section, you come together not for the better, not for the greater advantage, but for the worse, for the weaker. In verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul praised the church that they kept some of the traditions that he had passed along to them. But now he says, I will not praise you because when you gather around the Lord's table, it is not for the better, it is for the worse. Now that's a sad commentary. If you go to church, you hope that it's ultimately for the better, right? that you've edified somebody else, that you've built up somebody else, that you gave somebody else a hug or shared the love of Jesus. But what a sad commentary if the church comes together and ultimately it's for the worse. Somebody, someone would leave the church building unedified or torn down or looked upon with contempt. That is the exact opposite of what Christ wants. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, says the writer of Hebrews, not forsaking our own assembly together as the, is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, Hebrews 10, 24, 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've all studied the passages about our words and how our words can either build up, edify, or tear down. Well, when we come into the setting of corporate worship or a Bible study or wherever we may be, and we've gathered in the name of Christ, then Christ is the one who is to lead what we do and how we behave. The worst uh, has a connection to moral evil. It has the idea of not making someone stronger but weaker. For in the first place, 18, when you come together, when you assemble as a church, ecclesia is the word for church, as the called out ones, being a member of the church, you've been called out of the world. Here's what the word church means. It means called out. And called to something. You were called out of the world and called to Christ. But brothers and sisters, please hear what I'm about to say. But you were also called to one another. When you were called into the body 
out of the world. You were called to the head of the church who died, shed his blood for you, rose from the dead for you, but you were called to his people, away from the world and to his people. So it's not just that you've been called to Christ, but you've been called to his body. We are one in Christ. But Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions, as we saw in chapter 1, exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Some scholars believe that Paul's last words there are ironic. Like, of course I believe it, or as I used to say when I was young, I can't believe it! Whenever, when something wasn't going my way, that's, that was my famous phrase. I can't believe it! I can't believe it! My mom would say, believe it! <laughs> Because it's happening. <laughs> anyway, that's something to burst your bubble right there. What a strange and ironic thought that they came together for division. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and you're getting your hair ready for church and you're thinking, let's go to church today so we can divide more. Wow, what a thought. What a wretched thought. Let, let's, let's go to church today so we can look down on other people. <laughs> really? Is that the heart of Jesus? Well, Paul says that's what you're doing. And Paul says, if, if we could translate it this way, I can't believe it. It's kind of mock disbelief. It's incredulity. Chloe's people in chapter 1, verse 10, had told Paul about what was happening. And the root of this is socioeconomic gulfs between the haves and the have-nots. That's pretty much what's going on. A theater of discord. For there must also be factions, 19, among you, in order that those who are approved or pleasing or acceptable may become evident among you. Paul says, in one sense, I guess there has to be this. So that there can be a separation from the wheat and the tares, the true and the false. And this is a strong word because this means that the factions that existed in the Corinthian church with attitudes around the Lord's Supper began to reveal who was a true Christian and who wasn't. Who had come into this setting simply because they wanted to show off or do whatever they were going to do, but they weren't converted so they came into this setting and it became evident who was filled with the love of Christ and who was not. You see, we can make all the apologetic arguments we want to make, folks. But if our living actions don't follow our apologetic arguments, our arguments mean zilch. If we, have, if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and we'll get to this chapter in a future study, but have not love, we are... A clanging gong. We're a noisy cymbal. And I'm a drummer. All right? My heart goes out to drummers. I know the pain they go through. I'm just kidding. But if you're a drummer, you know what I'm saying. But if a drummer is playing without a band, especially an inexperienced drummer, you ever get that first set of drums for the, the kid? This is what grandparents do. They get it for the grandchild. Oh, it's a strategic move. It's their birthday. You say, what did you get, little Johnny? We got him a drum set. It's one way to get your kids back if you uh, have that kind of agenda, if you don't want to walk in love. <laughs> uh, let's turn over to 1 John. 1 John. 
chapter 2. John is known as the apostle of love, and he's writing some things. To be able to discern the true believer from the false, this is 1 John 2, 18. He says, children, it is the last hour, 1 John 2, 18, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown, it might become evident, that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Flip over to 1 John 4. Look at verse 19. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love, you all know it, because He first loved us. Now keep reading. We often think that this means we love God because He first loved us. That's an implication of the text, but keep reading. If someone says, I love God, and what? Hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this suggestion, no, oh, I'm sorry, it's the wrong translation. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should what? Should love his brother also. How many times do you think on a Sunday morning, we are sinning against God just right there. I'm talking about across the country. I'm talking about around the world. See, John's test, as much as it is about theology and doctrine, turn back to 1 Corinthians 11, ultimately is expressed in the action of love. And it's revealing to see what was happening around the Lord's Supper. People were being factious, puffed up, prideful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, 20, <clears throat> Therefore, when you meet together, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And someone in the church might say, yes, it is. And Paul would say, no, it's not. Because when you gather, don't call this the Lord's Supper. Call it your supper. Call it your party. But don't you dare call that the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord is obviously not in charge of it. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper, 21, or meal, if you have the ESV, first. I'll explain that word in a moment. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. Many years ago, I was a young pastor, and I was asked to share a communion meditation on Easter Sunday. So it was a big day for me. Church was packed, everybody was dressed up, it was Resurrection Sunday, and I was leading the communion time. I began to speak, and a man was causing some distraction over here, people were rustling around, and you could hear a low murmur, and I kept trying to go and speak over it, and he was getting louder, and people were getting more uncomfortable, and heads in the church were turning, and I tried to speak louder over it. And finally, the man stood up in the middle of the church, looked to the back. One of our ushers was standing at the back door and said, Tell that guy to stop looking at me! <laughs> and I was like, oh, great! Here I am, sharing my communion meditation on Easter Sunday, and I got this wacko in the third row. So I said, I said, sir, 
sit down and respect what's going on. He was like, sorry, pastor. And he sat back down. Ushers came down, and they dragged him out of the church, and they would talk to him for a while. And so later on, I, I talked to some of the ushers. and said, what happened? And they said, well, we found out the guy was on a three-day alcohol binge, and he ran out of alcohol, and he couldn't wait till the communion tray came by so he could start nailing as many of the little juice cups as possible. And he was getting upset because it wasn't happening because I was talking too long. I know you all can't understand that. I never do that. First of all, he made a major mistake because we were serving Welch's that morning. So I don't think it was going to really help him. But, but the morning became all about him and his need and what he wanted. And this attitude, apparently in the Corinthian church, is some people were at communion. This tells you with all the debate about, you know, was the wine real in the first century? Was it diluted? It may have been diluted, but it had some alcohol in it because I don't know how you get drunk if it doesn't have alcohol. Unless you can drink enough Welch's to get drunk. I don't know. But, but think about what was happening. So people were arriving. Some poor people were arriving late. They had very little. And you arrive, and you watch other people eat a five-course meal who are wealthy, and you watch other people who are intoxicated, schnockered at the Lord's Supper, so-called. And you have to be thinking, what? What in the world is going on here? They assembled, but it was for the worse. And Paul says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. See the word um, first there, takes his own supper first. I won't try to pronounce the Greek word for you, but one commentator says it can mean to take in advance or to take before. In the first meaning, the wealthy not only began their private meal before the congregational meal, but also ate by themselves and had more to eat. The late arrivals, probably the poor freedmen getting off from work and slaves, who had no control over their schedules, they failed to wait for one another. That's also verse 33. Thus let, left the late arrivals hungry. Uh, if you ever come late to a potluck where we didn't ha quite have enough food, that's happened. Sometimes that happens at our men's breakfast. We cook up a certain amount of food. We don't know how many are going to get there. And if you're late, there's a couple potatoes for you. <laughs> but that's about it. And so... That may be one meaning, but a second meaning of first argues that the verb does not mean to consume the food before the arrival of others, but it means to eat or drink or to devour. The problem is not that some were jumping the gun and eating before others arrived in this view. The problem is that they devour their own ample amounts of food in the presence of their fellow Christians who have little or nothing to eat. Can you imagine it? He showed up with a five-course meal and a huge basket, and there you are. Mmm. Oh, yeah. It's good. And this family is over here in a the corner. They're also Christians, and they're sharing a tiny bit of bread. And in that ancient context, apparently, unlike our church potlucks, people didn't share. You just had what you had. And maybe some people were starting to say, Look at them. They're sharing a piece of bread. Look at their clothes. And Paul was like, what? Are you kidding me? That's not really what's happening, is it? Jude 12 says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. 
When they feast with you without fear, fear, caring for themselves, they are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Can you imagine on the heels of a meal like that with all of this stuff going on, somebody coming up to a microphone and praying something like this? Lord, as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper following this great potluck time, thank you for giving your precious life for all of us. Thank you for laying down your rights and shedding your blood and dying for us as the bread of life, the the juice of the new covenant, the wine of the new covenant in Jesus' name. After you just did that? Can you imagine how hypocritical somebody who's poor in that setting listens to that prayer and says, really? And frankly, sometimes people look at us and maybe if our behavior is contradictory, they think the same. Drunkenness was closely associated with idolatrous rites from pagan festivals and maybe that was a bit of what the Corinthians were carrying into the so-called Lord's Supper. One writer says, call it what you will, but don't call that the Lord's Supper. Strong. Paul says, what? (laughs) You ever just been there before? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Probably addressing the, the wealthy here. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you, says Paul? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. This is not what should be happening. How could this be, says Paul? Jesus Christ laid down his his rights for us. We have a Last Supper tradition that we're going to see, a teaching passed along, but we got to see the big picture of the meal. For I received from the Lord, 23, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now I hope you can see that Even though this is important doctrine, Paul's main emphasis is not necessarily to correct a wrong understanding of communion, but to correct their attitude. Read it in this way. Think about their attitude. And when he had given thanks, Jesus, the Greek word for give thanks there is eucharisteo. It's where we get the idea of the Eucharist, but it means to be grateful. He, Jesus, broke it and said, this is my body which is for you or which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can you imagine being in that setting? You're remembering what the Lord did for you. I gave myself for you. I'm the bread of life. And yet having an attitude that's so opposite that? That's what Paul is getting after. He's saying, when you remember Jesus at this miracle meal, think about what it communicates. In the same way, Jesus, the head of the church, took the cup. Also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now many of us have learned the connection from the Passover and the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lentil to the final Passover lamb, Jesus. We understand his blood was shed for our sins. But what Paul is after here is do you see the giving component of the meal? Do you see what our master did for us? How he bought us with his blood? from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup that is the Lord's Supper, what do you do? You proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. Every time you take communion, you make a proclamation, brothers and sisters, whether you know it or not. You know what you're proclaiming? That you believe in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for your sins. And that you are grateful for what he did for you. How he died and was treated as though he had committed your sins and took the, the abuse and the punishment and the wrath of the Father on our behalf and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Such love. Such self-sacrifice for people who hated him. God put his love on display at that cross. And Paul says, can you go to that table that proclaims that loving act and do what you're doing? No. No, 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 says Paul. This does not fly. See, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're making a proclamation to all who may be there and who may know about your life. And your proclamation is also anticipatory. It is a proclamation filled with anticipation because it says, you proclaim the Lord's death, what's your Bible say, end of 26, until what? Until he comes. And when he comes, what's going to happen? We're going to be before his throne. We're going to be one people in his glory. There's an anticipatory aspect of the Lord's Supper, where we will be at his feet. Will I be able to say a word? Will I be able to sing or dance? Will I be able to even speak at all? That's what this meal anticipates. Christ's blood removes every barrier, socioeconomic, racial, class, gender, age, etc. It anticipates a day when we will be there rejoicing at the feet of our Savior. See his wounds for us. In his hands, feet, and side. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Y'all ready? Buckle your seatbelt. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I think that oftentimes when we've, if you've been in a church who shares communion every week, Maybe there's been an overemphasis on this part of it. All right, you better examine yourself and examine yourself carefully. Right? And examine yourself again just in case you weren't careful the first time. <laughs> now look, hold on. The Lord's Supper should be celebratory. It's a celebration of who we are. He invites us to the table. We should rejoice. It's a supper with our King and our Savior and our God. But let's not go to it with some calloused attitude. Let's not go to it as the apostles were arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest and Jesus had to wash their feet to send a message. Stop it. This is not how my church is going to change the world. You see, it can be taken in an unworthy manner. Now look, every time I come to the table in one sense, I'm unworthy to take the bread and the cup. Amen? Every time. I know who I am. I know how many times I've failed. So the issue is not that I'm an unworthy person because if I'm categorized that way, nobody could ever come to the table of the Lord. Amen? That's not the issue. The issue is not who you are. You've been saved and redeemed in Christ. The issue is the wrong attitude. The issue is disregard for the message of the meal and the people around you who are taking it in. And if you trample on our country's flag, 
You dishonor a, a pe- not just a piece of cloth, but you dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony, it dishonors the one to whom or the one we give the honor to or the one we celebrate. So let each one, each man, let each man and woman examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul's not saying don't eat it. Paul's not saying, uh, well, just beat yourself up at the table. But Paul is saying, examine yourself and then eat. Paul says, I strongly advise you to search your heart and see if this attitude is in you. I just wrote in my notes, oh Lord, when I eat of your supper, grant me your love in my heart. Every time I partake of the elements, retune my heart to your love. If there's something amiss, if I've come to this table with the wrong attitude or pride or whatever, change my heart. Because this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's the message. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if, 29, he does not judge, that's the word discern the body rightly. New King James, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The word for judgment is crema, and it can have the implication of discipline, that the Lord would discipline those who were selfish, self-centered, and ran roughshod over the holiness of what it represents and the Lord of the meal, or secondary meaning, possible, not discerning the body could be the body of Christ. If you don't discern the body rightly, it could be the body and the blood of the Lord, and maybe it can mean both, but it also can be the body, which will be the main topic of chapter 12, that we're all one with different gifts. It may be not discern, discerning the body rightly in the sense of other people. If anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. What would that judgment be? Verse 30. For this reason, many among you, it doesn't say a few, it says, sadly, many among you are weak, that's feeble, without strength, powerless, and sick, same ideas here, infirmed or weak, and a number sleep, and if you've ever studied this before, most scholars would argue that word means death. Get this. The Lord of the church has watched the Corinthians do what they're doing, and he has begun to discipline his people. And some are weak, and some are sick, and some apparently he has taken home to heaven. And all God's people said, wow. Wow. If that's how serious the Lord of the church takes it, then maybe I need to take another look at my heart and my attitude. Now, some of you may say, well, why this severe discipline? I think this is a pretty unique situation probably unlikely that it could be duplicated in the modern church in this setting. However, the attitudes could still be there. 
Why is the discipline so strong? I think because Jesus, the head of the church, is saying you're misrepresenting the cross to a world I'm trying to reach. And if you're going to continue to do that without repenting, I'm going to deal with you. And the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. Those whom I love, I discipline. Therefore, repent. That's written to a church in Revelation chapter 3. So we come to the table, and we hear what Paul says, and we, we see these words. He says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, if we just did a little business with the Lord, then we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. That has the idea of training a child in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. If the Lord does discipline us, and we all have probably experienced discipline in one form or the other, it's so that we're not condemned with the world. You know, if a, if a p- good parent disciplines a child, it's so that that child doesn't go off the deep end in the world and destroy themselves. Amen? Discipline can be a good thing if it keeps you from destruction. Some people say, I, I, I don't want to hear about the discipline. Well, you can go like this, la, 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 but... I got news for you. The Lord disciplines his people so that we won't be destroyed with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Lexical evidence suggests, says Garland, that the word here means to receive with the idea of sharing. It could be wait as in time, or it could be start sharing with one another. You made that wonderful potato cheese soup. Share it with the poor people who come in with just a little bit of bread. Because when you share, it's showing that you've been transformed by the love of Jesus. Open up your heart. Unlock some of those places where your pride and the culture that you're so ingrained in their ideas gets flipped upside down and start loving people who are different from you. We were at a church potluck some years ago and there were some people that, I was a young Christian, there were some people that were very different. It'd be 95 degrees outside, they would show up to church, they would zip their jackets all the way up to their eyebrows. (laughs) They just looked above the jacket. They were, they were different. <laughs> I'm at a church potluck with my buddies. Had a second plate of mac and cheese. Yeah, they're going, yeah, they're the, they're the Steelers, they're going to play. <laughs> and the Lord's like, go over and talk to those people. They're all alone. I'm like, no, that's the mac and cheese. That's not the Lord. That's the mac and cheese talking. Go over and engage those people. Well, you can't say no, Lord. So, yes, Lord. So I walked over there, made some eye contact above the jacket. How you doing? You know what? They did not speak like aliens. We are from this planet. We have come just for a little. No, it was none of that. They're like, we're doing okay. How you doing? I didn't ask them, why do you zip up your jacket to your eyebrows? I just started talking to them, and they were wonderful, lovely people sitting all alone. And the Lord said, I want you to go love them. You put aside your pride. You put aside the way you can look down on people and think you're so cool. 
and you do what I did for you. Yes, Lord. How about this week? Your prayer and my prayer is, Lord, if there's somebody marginalized over here that I wouldn't normally talk to, someone at church that I never say hi to because they're a lot different than me, today that stops because I belong to you and I want your heart And the only way this world is going to change is if I not only preach the gospel with these lips, but I actually live the gospel. And so, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment and the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Lord, to the final church at Laodicea, you said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. You were standing outside the church door, knocking to be let back into a church, a lukewarm church, Laodicea, who had left the love of people, who had become lukewarm to the needs of others, who had become lukewarm to the kingdom of God. And you knocked and said, let me back in. I want to dine with you. I want to retune your heart. I want to set you ablaze again. I want you to be cool and refreshing to others. I want you to be medicinal to others. Let me back in. Would you keep your head and heart bowed in an attitude of worship if you've not met Jesus or if you need to let him back in? Just do some business right now. We've just been told that a person examine themselves and then let them eat the bread and enjoy the cup. Once we've done this, man, we are free to eat. But we may need to repent of some things. And the first act of repentance you need, if you don't know Jesus, is to repent of your sin and say, Lord, I want to know your love. Change me. I believe you died on that cross. I believe in what this meal represents. I believe in your resurrection. Save me from my sin. Change me, Lord. Make me your child. If you've been a lukewarm Christian or maybe you've moved away from closeness and zeal, just say, Lord, I want to come back home. I repent of a wrong attitude. You fill in the blank. But Lord, as we come to you as a family of God, I rejoice in the beauty of this congregation. The hearts of these, these precious believers are so wonderful. So many beautiful good works that are happening. But Lord, we can miss stuff. And so help us. If there's any area where we need to change, may the head of the church, the Lord of the church, have your way in this church, in this fellowship, Lord, in my heart. We love you. And we ask your blessing now as those are coming to your table. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.